This episode of the Heart Failure Beat was originally recorded as a live broadcast on May 27th, 2022. We hope that you enjoy the episode. Well, hello and welcome to our first ever live broadcast of Heart Failure Beat, HFSA's podcast for heart failure professionals. I'm Kevin Shaw, the host of this season for the Provider Podcast. I'm excited here because we have a few guests here to discuss a new HFSA position paper on the impact of health disparities, healthcare disparities on patients with heart failure, which was published just earlier this month, May 2022, in Journal Cardiac Failure. I'm hopeful we could just go around and introduce ourselves today. We have two guests and we're live streaming this podcast and you may be listening to this podcast at a later time, but we have Dr. Morris and Dr. Page, co-authors and collaborators. First off, thank you both for joining. Thank you for having us. Of course, maybe Alana, if you could introduce yourself, and then Robert, if you could introduce yourself. My name is Alana Morris. I'm an associate professor of medicine at Emory University. I'm also the director of heart failure research, and um, my research interests are, are completely related to the statement, race and gender disparities in heart failure. My name is Robert Page. I'm a professor in the departments of clinical pharmacy, medicine, and physical medicine, and I'm a clinical pharmacist for the Division of Cardiology Advanced Heart Failure and heart transplant. I think this applies to just about everything that we that we do. And so, which makes it so very important. I couldn't agree more. So for starters, I want to congratulate both of you and then our co-authors on this statement. Uh, this includes Jorge Silva, UC San Diego, Eileen Sheesh, Cleveland Clinic, uh, Nazreen Ibrahim from Inova, and Dr. Clyde Yancey from Northwestern. It was clearly a team effort. Everyone worked hard to get this through. And Alana, maybe we can start with you. Background and really impetus for a document like this. What do we know about disparities, heart failure risk therapies, outcomes for patients now in 2022? I think the first thing to say is, I think as a medical community, I'm excited that the HFSA, in addition to multiple different professional societies, have really embraced this idea that we really need to put healthcare disparities and social determinants of health at the forefront of what we do. I think in cardiology, we spend a lot of time trying to sort of push the needle with research, better pharmacotherapy, better devices, better things to offer patients in terms of advanced therapies for heart failure. But we know that there are certain groups that tend to be more affected and really it's going to be hard for us to translate those advances if we don't address the social determinants of health and disparities in the way that we care for patients. So that was really the impetus the HFSA wanted to have a statement related to this. And and I think all of us were happy as well as our co-authors to Mm -hmm. contribute to writing this because it's so particularly important for our field. We know that Black and Hispanic patients in particular have a higher incidence of heart failure with Black patients really having the highest incidence of heart failure, as well as the highest rates of hospitalization from heart failure, as well as death when you adjust for age. But I think, Kevin, I know this is near and dear to your heart as well, that the way that we talk about race and ethnicity, we know that we have a lot of gaps in the literature. There are certain groups where we sort of cluster data and say everybody's Asian, And, you know, what does that mean? And we know that there are other groups, indigenous persons and and American Indians, where we don't have enough data. We really lack data. And there probably are glaring disparities in those groups um, that we don't know about in part because we just don't collect the data. And so I think this statement really tries to address what we know, but also what we don't know and what we need to do in terms of data collection to move forward to really try to advance care and be more equitable for patients from multiple different race ethnic groups. And to kind of chime in on that, Dr. Morris, as well, I think what's very unique about this particular statement 
is that it takes the 50,000 foot view from the health system and then it moves it down into the community and then to the patient level. And also, you know, not being a physician, this statement really does address all aspects, all healthcare members within the team. And I think that is what makes it also so unique compared to other statements that have been out published in literature. I couldn't agree more with both of your points. I think one of the things when Alana got us all together, right, and what a good leader does is really sets a vision for everyone. And I think one of the important emphases that she had was this is for sort of the full spectrum of heart failure. There's all the way, and there's a great figure in the document touching on this, all the way from the community, as you mentioned, Robert, to the individual, to the healthcare system, to the ivory tower where some, some of us practice. The team did a really nice job sort of covering everything in heart failure, or at least trying to. One of my favorite aspects of the document that I think helps a lot because there are, there, are, there are statements that exist like these, but this idea of actionable items. So as Robert mentioned, there's different domains of people that are involved here. And I think the document did a very nice job of touching on what professional society, societies can potentially do to help with actionable items from a disparities perspective. Alana, did you have any, do you want to comment on that in terms of how you thought through that? And then what sort of recommendations are being made now? I mean, I think everything that you, Kevin, and Robert are saying are, are right. We, we all have a part to play from our individual level patient encounters all the way up to what professional societies can do to continue to push this forward. And I think we hope that this will, again, be something that will be a lasting document and a lasting effort on the part of multiple professional societies, not just HFSA, but certainly within HFSA to keep keep sort of this focus on disparities at the forefront so that we can make sure that all patients are getting equitable care. I think in the past, we've probably spent a lot of time really focusing on patient level interventions, trying to focus on adherence and diet and and things that we know are, are certainly important at the patient level. But we also know, for example, when we talk about pharmacoequity, I'll pick on Robert, you know, now that we have all these new drugs that have incredible benefit when we look at morbidity and mortality, if we're writing prescriptions to patients who can't afford some of these medicines because of high copays, because they don't have insurance at all, it it doesn't help, right? Or we know that, you know, again, sort of thinking about some of the devices that we have to offer patients. If for some reason we are not offering it to certain patients and, and are more likely to offer it to other patients when we look at disparities related to TAVR or, again, sort of transcatheter-based mitral valve interventions, we know that there are huge gaps in terms of who's actually getting those therapies. And so we also have to turn the mirror on ourselves as providers and ask the question, are we, are we doing what we can do, not only at the patient level, but at a systems level, to look at our data, look at who's getting certain procedures, look at who's getting prescriptions for certain, certain medications. When we look at the society level, are we encouraging each of the committees to sort of make equity disparities research to make all of these different things really sort of at the core of what we do as a society and to keep those things at the forefront so that we can see hopefully that these gaps are closing with time. Because I think that's the problem is that when we look at the data, it doesn't suggest the gaps are closing with time. And that's a big part of the problem. And of course, policy, right? And I know the HFSA has been incredibly involved at a policy level. I think a lot of times what we do at a policy level may be related to reimbursement, right? I mean, we know that money is a big part of how healthcare is is delivered, and that's incredibly important. But when we look at certain policies like the HRRP, are there policies that may have a disparate impact on, on patients who may be more likely to suffer from social determinants? 
I mean, those types of things, it can have a disparate impact, for example, on hospitals that are minority serving or more likely to serve patients who are from underserved communities. And we just need to make sure that, again, the policy and the advocacy that we're delivering is addressing these issues. To Alana's point also, again, is both you, Kevin, and Alana, what makes this such a robust statement is this isn't just a summary of the literature. It's based on your experiences also as a researcher in these areas. And that's what makes it so, so much a different compared to other statements. And that's why I would always, I would encourage everybody to read this statement. The principles, they're there. Actually, I will tell you, it's eye-opening. It very much is. Well, you know, speaking of eye-opening, there's one table in here that I think, Robert, you did a nice job in sort of championing along with others on the team, uh, this idea of a framework for understanding racism. I'd love for you to maybe provide a little background or commentary on what this actually is. So it's table one in the document, if you have a chance to review it, framework for understanding racism on three levels. Absolutely. And as I said, as I was participating from the standpoint of the LGBT community, I have to say, as I was evaluating these concepts, it really made me question how I approach certain situations and patients. And as I said, that, and, and to me, that's what makes a document, manuscript, a statement. If you can, makes you question, that's important. And one of the aspects, as you mentioned, is with regards to the various types of racism that does exist. I know we toss this term out, but they, there are different forms of racism that occurs at various levels, some of which are not uh, are unintentional, completely unintentional, but like institutionalized or structural racism. We hear that a lot on the news. And that is really where this has been embedded for so long in either health policy, practice, the quote unquote norms that we see and the, the origins of these lie within history. And so that's one aspect that we just don't think about. And those are, as, as to Dr. Morris's point again, this is the health policy that needs to be addressed and changed. And actually sometimes it can be one of the hardest too, because you have to have buy-in from multiple stakeholders and saying, hey, this is an issue. The other is personally mediated. And this is just based on our assumptions that maybe we grew up with. It, it could be intentional, it could be unintentional. It does sometimes manifest as little microaggressions. And you know what? It's interesting since being very fortunate to be a part of the writing group, I've noticed this so much in just my, my discussions. And, and it, it's very much true. But again, personally mediated racism is usually what's going with the norms. We're very fortunate in this today's society where we're not accepting the norms anymore. This is unacceptable. Um, and then it's internalized. And this is really, I would say, characterized by just not, this is where it comes down to you as the individual, basically not believing others, being untrustworthy, acceptance of the stigmatisms of racism, very negative message on that. And so, again, how we approach this is very important when you think of these principles and these definitions. And so that also, to build upon that, is how we then address the issue from, again, the huge health policy, public health standpoint, down to the individual. But another thing about this clinical science or this statement 
is the fact that it makes you really look and internalize it and saying, I need to, to address this. And that's why, again, I think this statement is so much different from other statements. I think to Robert's point, you know, many of us sort of when we hear the word racism, the first thing we think about is interpersonal racism, personal and media racism. We say, right. well, I don't do that. That's not me. But again, I think this statement really tried to put a focus primarily, or I shouldn't say primarily, but a bigger focus on structural racism and how that really affects so much of who we take care of, where they live and work, what they have access to in terms of health promoting behaviors, I like to call them, right? Because as as cardiology clinicians, we're constantly giving patients recommendations about how they can improve their lifestyle and their food choices. And again, just even in terms of access to certain drugs, access to vaccines, as we've seen during the COVID-19 pandemic, access to certain facilities to get medical care, all of those things are impacted by structural racism. So when we give recommendations to patients, we have to keep in the back of our mind that individual patients' ability to implement and to act on those recommendations differs dramatically based on where they live and their ability to access certain therapies differs dramatically based on where they live. As Robert said, that really is a function of structural racism and it affects outcomes for sure. Absolutely. We can have all the data in the world. I can recommend every, but if the social determinants of health are not addressed initially, not going to work. So that's, again, so very important, critical in the state. And I, and I think you, you sort of touched on it earlier, Alana, like those of us practicing in this space, the amount of new, exciting interventions that keep coming out every year from a structural intervention, pharmacotherapy intervention. We have some of the coolest tools and toys to help some of the sickest patients that are walking around this country, right? right. And I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of us went into this field. We like that stuff. That's right. The amount that our hands are tied, metaphorically speaking, in terms of being able to provide or prescribe interventions that we feel very confident will help the person in front of us based on their ability to access those interventions, or as you guys have mentioned, the social determinants of health that can really drive that. It's very sobering sometimes. I have a long list of things I'd like to offer the patient I'm going to see in clinic this afternoon, and I know half of them are off the table before we even open the dialogue. Yeah, I think it's important for us to talk about racism, and as Robert mentioned, because sort of this aspect of internalized racism and the idea of medical mistrust, which I think many of us were maybe not as aware of how strong medical mistrust was, but it's really sort of come to the fore during the pandemic because of COVID-19. But certainly individuals from marginalized groups who have sort of this history of being affected by racism in this country, I think in many ways, right, this idea of medical mistrust has really been heightened. So again, when we're offering therapies to patients, it's not that any individual from any self-reported race ethnic group is going to be more likely to say yes or no. Everybody should be treated as an individual. But I think as clinicians, we also have to be aware that there may be some medical mistrust on the part of the patient that, quite frankly, we've earned. We've earned that as a healthcare community because of the way that we've treated certain communities in the past. And I think that's important for us to be able to talk about openly as clinicians and to acknowledge. And then again, if we're going to stop that structural racism, at least within the medical community, we got it. That's the beauty of HFSA. We got to start with the big societies. And that, again, I commend the HFSA for commissioning such a statement on this. And and again, it also addresses issues that exist. I'd love it. It talks about like editorial boards. Yeah. 
I mean, it really highlights they're all no, they're all old white oligarchs. <laughs> I kid you not. But yet that's been the way it is for 50 years. And yet that's not an excuse. And we address that. You dot yeah, the, the writing group addressed that very well in this in this document. And I think that's changing. I mean, I, you know, you can say the Journal of Cardiac Failure, because I can I can promote JCF because I'm on the editorial board. <laughs> that, we, that we issued right a statement sort of declaring the importance of DEI for the editorial board at JCF. And it's something that we actively try to sort of not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. And I think that a lot of journals are changing, right? But it can't be a slow change, right? It can't be like this slow drip. It has to be something that, again, we actively push towards to make sure not only when we are selecting who's on the editorial board, sending papers out for review, but also sometimes the comments, right? Like I can say as someone who's been in this space for a long time and I've submitted however many papers related to disparities, and sometimes the comments that you'll get back from reviewers are like, wow, you can see the bias, and I think even as editorial board members, you know, when we're reviewing the comments that we get back from reviewers and we see bias, right, we have to we have to remove those comments. We have to talk about it during editorial board meetings. We, we really have to, again, sort of try to make sure that that framework is at, is at the top and is a priority in terms of what we're doing. I think we're trying to do that at JCF. JCF is great about that. Yeah, I think, I think these are huge steps in the right direction. I, I think there is sort of a, a younger generation or earlier career generation of trainees and physicians that are a little bit more mindful of this as we all evolve, which is a good thing. You know, for those who have not read this statement, uh, I'd love to give both of you just an opportunity if you wanted to try and summarize at least or what you would hope a reader for someone who's taking care of a patient at risk for heart failure with established heart failure with end stage heart failure. What are some of the takeaways that you try to emphasize for someone uh, either before reading this or even after reading this, that, that you hope a reader learns from uh, absorbing this document. Maybe we can start with Robert on this one. One of the things that the big takeaways is how to approach it. And that was also what we put together. And I actually, we coined the phrase pillars well before the guideline-directed medical therapy pillars existed. But anyway, how to, as I said, how to really deal with this and from the standpoint of a health system or a medical organization. And I do like that. It's it's summarized in table two. But again, as, as Dr. Morris mentioned, we have to elevate the issue. And it's not about, well, we'll do it over time. No, we need to do this right now. I mean, this is an issue, number one. And then number two, engaging our stakeholders. And again, that also includes not only our healthcare team, but more importantly, it really also is with the patient. And the other is going to be equipping people with the appropriate tools. And I think at one of those, that's the big thing with regards to this is what do we need in order to address this? And then, as I mentioned before, the last one I want to do is just is try to empower those that were been marginalized. A great example. I just saw a patient day with an ejection fraction of 20%, no insurance. She was African-American. And I, people are like, well, we, we, we shouldn't even consider starting DAPA and, and, um, and trust. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. What are you doing? No, this is something we need to be looking at. And, and again, so I feel like after reading this statement, I don't make assumptions anymore. I didn't even realize I was making assumptions. And that's the key thing. I'm like, let's not use just because someone doesn't have insurance as the main barrier, Let's look at other options. And of course, I guess that's why I have a job. But anyway, that's exactly what we did. 
But sometimes people would just write it off immediately. And I'm like, no, 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 no. So again, that's one of the the things that I loved about this. this Again, it was eye-opening for me as well. Alana? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I like about the statement is you guys have pointed out it's it's pretty comprehensive. We spend some time talking about the epidemiology. We -hmm. spend some time trying to really dig into aggregating ancestry from the social construct of race and ethnicity, because I I still think that within our field, right, acknowledging ancestry is important. We talk about certain conditions like TTR, amyloid, and others that are really related to ancestry, but are also affected by disparity. So we try to sort of talk about some of the areas that are really important, but I think the emphasis on solutions is maybe really what distinguishes this statement from others. And so if people read this, I really hope that they'll spend some time in the second part of the document really focusing on the solutions that we've offered, which are sort of encompassed in figure three as a central illustration, because there's multiple different areas to work out. Again, this is far beyond just the patient provider level interactions. There's issues that we need to take care of within the healthcare system. There's issues, big issues that we need to take care of within the way that we do research, within the way that we do clinical trials who we include in our clinical trials. And we know this as a community, but again, sort of highlighting some of the barriers and highlighting some of the things that we need to do moving forward, not only in terms of who we're recruiting, but what data we're collecting in registries, what data is lacking as it pertains to social determinants and disaggregating certain race, ethnic groups. I mean, there's a lot that we need to change if we really want to move this field forward. And I think that the document really does a very comprehensive job of sort of highlighting what we felt as a writing group was important. But I think the other thing is that, you know, we want this conversation to continue. So within the HFSA community and even beyond, we hope that people will leave comments, make suggestions, and really think about the way that we can do this better for the next iteration of a document like this. I agree, particularly this area of just actionable items. I learned so much from both of you and, and all of our collaborators on this statement. And going all the way from transplant selection committees to editorial boards to the community, this impacts everything that we do, taking care of patients, writing about patients, studying patients. Congratulations to co-authors. I hope everyone listening does have a chance to read it. And of course, really hearty congratulations and thank you to Alana. Fearless leaders are the only way these things get done. And that's kind of what she was for this statement. So we appreciate it. Keep doing fantastic work. Well, thank you guys for being part of the writing group and and couldn't have done it without you, especially you guys. Thank you, uh, everyone, for watching live. I want to thank our participants for being here today. As a reminder, today's discussion is recorded. It will be available as a Heart Failure Beat podcast, hopefully soon. And we encourage you to check out the position paper. It's online now uh, in May of 2022, Journal of Cardiac Failure. And as always, for more information, advances on late-breaking news in the field of heart failure care, Make sure to subscribe to the podcast, hfsa.org. Thank you for joining us and have a great day. Thanks, everyone. Take care, everybody.